The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We started our study last week of um, this passage looking at the call to live with appropriate fear of God. Where we've been, we've, we've seen a, a study of salvation. Again, it began a couple weeks ago looking at this application of salvation. Because you're, you're saved, you should live certain ways. You should live with um, holiness because God is, is holy. You should live with your hope fully set. On Jesus Christ. And last week we, we looked at how we should live with this appropriate fear of God. And we saw as, as Peter unfolded this for us that it is a fear that's based on the fact that God is both our Father and our Judge. God is an accessible Father. And if you call on Him as Father, that is, since you call on Him as Father, then live with, with fear this appropriate fear of God. And because He is the, the impartial judge, live with this fear of God. These were these motivating factors to live with an appropriate fear of God. And we, we talked about what that fear is. That was the majority of the sermon last week. We're not going to rehash that this week. The, the, our sermons are on our website. They're on iTunes, Christ Central Church. They're on Stitcher. Um, there should be pretty easy to, to find. So we looked at these motivating factors. This God being an accessible father, God being an impartial judge. That's not the only motivating factors to live with an appropriate fear of God that, that Peter gives us. As a matter of fact, he, he gives us another one that we're going to look at this, this morning. Last week, we pretty much only looked at verse 17. We just looked briefly at verse 18. Um, this morning, I want to go back to 18, look a little bit more in depth, verses 18 through 21, um, as we see this other motivating reason to live with an appropriate fear, and that is because we have been ransomed. Because we've been ransomed. Peter says it this way. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's verse 17. Knowing that you were ransomed. See, these, these uh, ideas are tied together. Conducting your life with fear as you know that you have been ransomed. Now, as Peter wrote this letter to churches in what are really modern-day Turkey... They would have been well acquainted with what it means to be ransomed or what it means to pay a ransom. Theirs was a culture where indentured servitude, slavery, uh, military bondage would have been common in their culture. And um, there would certainly have been members of 
these churches, this letter was written to a number of churches, there would have certainly been members of these churches who at one time had been ransomed, who at one time had been in bondage, whatever form of bondage that may have have taken, and then at a point in their life been ransomed, been bought out, been released from the bondage that they were in by the payment of a ransom. This, this culture would have understood this. We don't know this as well in our culture. And praise God that we don't. It's a good thing. It's the grace of God that we don't understand this as, as deeply as they do. But you, you know what this is. And you know what this ransom look, looks like. It would have been personal for them. Members, brothers, sisters through the payment of a price, released from bondage. This is what a ransom does. It secures the release by the payment of a price. That's a ransom. A ransom is a purchase, but it's a different kind of purchase, right? It's not a purchase of of slavery. It's not you purchasing a person to own a person. Instead, it's the purchase of that person's freedom, their release. You give money, they are released. That could come from another person freeing a person. It could come from an indentured servant working their way, earning their way to, to buy their freedom. This idea of uh, ransom plays an important role in understanding our salvation. And I think in, in some parts it's overlooked as we think about salvation and these different aspects of our salvation. I mean, we can talk about salvation in terms of a sacrifice and that Jesus Christ was a sacrifice and this imagery of a sacrifice is the removal of guilt. That's what a sacrifice does. And so we can talk about salvation in those terms or we can talk about this, this aspect of salvation of propitiation. And that's a, that's a big word. It's a word that we certainly do not use, but it, it, it means appeasing the wrath of God. And so we can talk about this in our salvation, this propitiation that was, was paid, that was given to appease the wrath of God, that, that Christ took on the wrath of God to appease the wrath of God so that we would not have to bear the wrath of God. We can look at this idea of reconciliation in salvation. And we've already looked at it in, in uh, the terms of this, this chapter. It's, this reconciliation is uh, a removal of our alienation with God, right? We've been reconciled with Him, brought back into a relationship where we once were alienated from Him, now we're reconciled with Him. Along with that comes this idea of adoption where we were once enemies of God, but now we've been adopted into the, into the family. We're now children of obedience, children of God, fellow heirs of, of Christ, Ransom is just as important as all of those terms and all of those issues that we think about when we think about our salvation and what plays a role in our salvation. This idea of ransom or redemption speaks to the liberation 
from bondage affected by our sin. When, when Peter writes this to say that you have been ransomed, what he means is that there was a price paid, there was a payment paid that released you from bondage. And it is the, the bondage of your sin. We are all in bondage. All of creation. Every one of us, slaves to sin. Every person who's ever lived has been a slave to sin. This morning, if you are not in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you are still a slave to sin. But if you have been redeemed, if you have been ransomed, there has been a payment paid to free us from that bondage. This is Romans 6, starting in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Here's what that means. In your former life, if you're a believer in Christ, in your former life, if you're not a believer in Christ, in your current life, you are slaves to sin, held bondage to sin, that sin so controls you that you can't help but sin. Paul says you're, you're free to righteousness. That's not a, a freedom to live righteously. That is an inability to live righteously. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Was there any fruit from this life of slavery to sin? No, there wasn't. For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. This is uh, redemption. This is ransom. This is a freedom from a slavery of, of sin to a, a new kind of life. And the fruit that you get from this life leads to sanctification. And its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This sin that we were held in bondage to, every one of us, Slaves to sin, this sin that we were held in bondage to, that we needed ransomed from, freedom from. God's word says that that sin, that bondage is hereditary. This is Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That when sin entered the world through Adam, that sin spread to every person because every person has sinned. From the time of Adam until today, all of creation has had one thing in common, and that is sin. A bondage of sin that is hereditary, that is passed down, that's part of our nature, comes from our birth. This sin that controls us, this sin that holds us in bondage, that informs the way that we live. This sin, the scriptures say, not only controls us, but it controlled the way our fathers lived and the way their fathers lived and the way their fathers lived and the way their fathers lived. A generation after generation, person after person, born since the days of, of Adam, everyone have been in bondage and slavery to sin. 
Peter says it this way in this verse, knowing that you were ransomed, you were purchased with a price, you were freed from this bondage. Freed from what? Peter says, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That this is the life that you've been bought, you've been born into. You've been born into a life that Peter describes as futile. What does that mean? That means it's a life that's that's useless. To be futile means it's useless. It's pointless. It's leading to no good end. Right? That was that was Romans 6, right? What was this fruit that you were getting? You're not getting anywhere. The life that you're living in bondage to sin is futile. Even if you were to achieve fame, and even if you were to achieve fortune, and even if you were to live a a comfortable life that that seems on the outside as, as, as a good life, in the end, where does it lead you to? It leads you to no good end. It leads you to death. It's a futile life. To live in bondage and slavery to sin. It is to live with, with no purpose. This is, this is the image that I, I get when I, I read this. This futile way of living. What, what I see is a hamster on a wheel. Giving it all he's got. Tiring himself out. But getting nowhere. That's the definition of futile living. You can be busy and you can be active and it can feel like you're accomplishing things. I'm sure that hamster feels like he's going somewhere. But when he steps off, he's gone nowhere. He's gone nowhere. But the good news is, is that God's redeeming works breaks the tyranny of traditions inherited from our forefathers, both in families and in nations. That's the good news of this verse, is that you have been ransomed, you have been bought. There has been a price paid to secure your release from a slavery of sin, from a futile way of living that you inherited from your forefathers. And I read that and I am so encouraged now, I have been blessed to have good parents. And I hope by God's grace, I can be a good parent. But there are those who don't have that history. And that's okay. Because a new life in Christ frees you from bondage to, to sin. And even if you've got great parents, there's still a bondage of sin unless there's freedom through Jesus Christ. This is what God's work does. It it frees us from this. It releases us from this bondage that is hereditary, passed down through generation after generation. Since the day of Adam, every person born into slavery of sin and a futile way of living. God has freed us. He's redeemed us from that Lifestyle, that's verse 18. But what is this price paid? What is this price that has freed us? What is this price that's uh, released us, that's redeemed us from this 
lifestyle. That's, that's literally this, this word. It's, it's from this, Peter uses it all the time, uh, anastrophe, different forms. This is lifestyle. It's a way of living. What is this price that's been paid? A ransom demands a price. What is this price that's been prayed, paid that has freed us? Well, first Peter tells us what it wasn't. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. First we find out what it wasn't that that freed us, and it wasn't a a price, a payment that was made with, with perishable things. These are things that are corruptible. That's what it means, perishable things, things that will not last, things that are corruptible. What are these perishable things? These perishable things are things that are connected to this world. That's what it means to be a perishable thing. It's things that are connected to this world. It's not just silver and gold that's perishable, right? Because what does Peter say? Like. Silver and gold. It's just by way of analogy, Peter using this this illustration to say, you were ransomed, you were freed from this bondage, not with perishable things like silver and gold. It was nothing that's connected to this world that freed you. Now they would have read this and, and there, or heard this and there would have been brothers and sisters in these congregations that would have, have heard this being read and guess what their life story would have been. Their life story would have been one of bondage and a release because somebody gave somebody some silver or, go- or gold. And they would have been ransomed. They would have been freed. I mean, talk about an incredible moment and something to be grateful for. But Peter's writing to them to say that your ransom, the freedom that was purchased for you, is greater than anything that could have been bought with silver or gold. That is not the way that things are done in the kingdom of God. Because there's a greater ransom that's been paid. And the reason why there's a greater ransom that's been paid is because the price is much steeper than that of silver and gold. There's a price to be paid that was way more valuable than silver or gold. Because there's a bondage that holds us that's greater than any earthly bondage. There's a spiritual bondage that demands a a spiritual price. It wasn't with the perishable that we were ransomed. But it was with the imperishable. That's the implication, right? Not with perishable things like silver or gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What was the payment? The payment was blood. The payment was blood. Now, there's a lot of people who want to take the imagery of blood out of God's word and out of preaching and out of today's conversation because it's, it's violent. But the reality is that that's exactly what God demanded for payment. And when Peter says it was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
He means both, literally, the blood shed by Jesus Christ and the life given by Jesus Christ. Blood represents life. It's not just that Christ bled. It is that Christ bled and died. It was a sacrifice, a payment of death that guaranteed the release of our bondage to sin. It was his life that was the price. It was the life of Christ that was the cost. Jesus himself says it this way, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that his life would be the price to secure our freedom from the bondage and the slavery of sin. Just like his sacrifice removes our guilt, and just like his propitiation appeases the wrath of of God, so his death purchases the ransom price for our freedom and our bondage to sin. What does Peter have to say about this? He says that this is precious blood. Precious blood, but with the precious blood of Christ. What does that mean, this precious blood? You see the imagery that that Peter is, is painting here. You were not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. See, silver and gold have have limited value, right? I mean, gold is worth what gold is worth. Silver is worth what silver is worth. You determine the worth of something based on what somebody's willing to pay for something, right? But the blood of Christ is different. The blood of, the blood of Christ is priceless. There is no worth that can be assigned to that because it's precious. That's what it means for something to be precious, right? If something is is precious, my precious. You know, you're gonna do, you're gonna do, you're gonna do anything to hold on to it, right? I mean, that's 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 the whole imagery in the Lord of the Rings that that this ring is so precious that there is absolutely nothing that compares to its value and worth to me. And so I will do whatever it takes to hold on to this precious thing. That it is what the blood of Christ is. It is beyond value. It goes beyond worth. It is precious. It's precious. Why is it precious? Blood's not precious, right? I mean, it is if you need a blood transfusion, I guess, but I mean, you you know what I'm saying. Just blood in general is not precious. The fact that it was blood is not what made it precious. It's whose blood it was that made it precious. Because it was the blood of Christ, because it was the blood of God, because it was the blood of the sinless one, because it was the the blood of the creator of all things, 
the sustainer of all things. Because it was his blood, it's precious. And it's precious because it was the only blood that could set us free. There wasn't another blood that could purchase for us the freedom from our bondage. There was no other blood. If there was, then that would have been purchased a long time ago because there had been a lot of bloodshed over the years. That's, that's the point Peter's making here. Because he says of this precious blood that it was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now what is Peter doing as he says that? What he's doing is he's taking us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Where there was a payment of blood for the sins of the people. But it was never enough. How do we know it was never enough? Because they kept having to come back and do it over and over again. Because that blood wasn't precious. But Christ's blood is precious. The sacrifice once and for all. And and Peter says that blood is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A lamb brought to the temple to be sacrificed. The life given for the forgiveness of sins. And here Peter ties the sacrifice of Jesus to that historical practice saying that Jesus was like that of a lamb. But literally, this better reads, is the lamb. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He wasn't just like a lamb. He became the lamb. He became the sacrifice. Because Jesus is and has always been the true lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is why John the Baptist, at the inauguration of of Jesus' ministry, looks at him and says, John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is and has always been the true Lamb of God, the true sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. This is Revelation 13. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. He's always been the Lamb. He's always been the real and true Lamb. And Peter's saying, this precious sacrifice of blood is precious because of who is, whose it is. Because He is the one and true Lamb of God. God. You see, we understand the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament sacrificial system, as shadow. Have y'all heard that before? That the Old Testament, you understand the Old Testament, this idea of, of shadow. It's type and shadow. Here's what that means. And then I don't think anywhere is this seen as clearly as this. What that means is, and you can, you can see, I don't know if I can make it where there's a shadow. On a hand. You, you can see 
when you see a, a shadow, you don't see the, the real thing. Right? You just see the shadow of the thing. You don't see the substance. You see the shadow. You don't see the real thing. You see a, a shadow of the real thing. See, that's what the Old Testament sacrificial system is. It's a shadow of the real thing. It is not the substance. It's the shadow. And even in the Old Testament, as God institutes a sacrificial system of lambs being slain for the forgiveness of sin, God does that as a shadow of the true lamb. You don't see the true lamb, you see the shadow in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But there is, and there has always been, the substance there. We just weren't able to see it. Does that make sense? You see the shadow of the substance, not the substance himself. But Jesus and his sacrifice has always been the substance. That has always been the plan. Even in the Old Testament, the plan wasn't just the sacrifice of a, of a lamb. The plan was there is a real lamb, there is a true lamb who you can't see yet. All you can see is a shadow. This is what Peter says, verse 20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means exactly what it says. That Jesus has always been the one. Always. He is the eternally appointed redeemer. Before the foundation of the world, God appointed, God marked out, God chose Jesus to be the great redeemer. This is what he means when he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, before there was time, God knew Christ to be the Redeemer. God knew Christ to be the Lamb, the payment, the price for redemption. But this was hidden throughout the ages. All we could see is the shadow of the substance and not the substance. All we could see is the shadow of the true Lamb, not the true Lamb. But Peter doesn't stop there, does he? What does he say next? He says, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What Peter is saying is what was once hidden, what was once shadow, now has been made clear. Now you can see the substance that's always been there, right? I mean, for there to be a shadow, there has to be something there. He's always been there. You've only seen his shadow, but now he has been made manifest. He has been made known. That's what it means to be made manifest, to be made known, to be revealed. The substance has been revealed. The way that God has always planned to redeem us has been revealed. It's happened. It's been revealed. Now, don't let this phrase throw you in the last times. Because you, you might read that and think that that means the end times. That doesn't mean the end times. I think the, the better way to, to read that is in these last days. 
Man, it's like me saying in these last times. I mean, we understand these last times as, as the times that have just taken place. That's what, this, that's what Peter's saying. It's in these last days that the real lamb of God, the substance, not the shadow, has been revealed. He's been made manifest. And this has happened. Look at what he says. For the sake of you. Isn't that amazing? Here's what this means taken all together. That there was never a time in all of eternity that God didn't have you in his heart to send Christ as your redeemer. Isn't that amazing? There has never been a time since before the foundations of the world God had in his heart you to send Christ to be your redeemer. Why don't you think about this for a second? The whole of history is marked out by an event that has taken place for your sake. Isn't that crazy? All of this has happened, Peter says, for your sake. For your sake. This is amazing. And I can imagine that this is exactly what these persecuted, suffering, sojourning brothers and sisters needed to hear. These are, these are aliens, not just because our citizenship is in heaven. That is certainly true. But these are aliens because they are being alienated from society. Remember the context here. I know it, it feels like forever ago that we started in 1 Peter chapter 1. But there is a great persecution that has come that's just begun or is about to begin in the rule of Nero. There is alienation. There is persecution that is happening in these churches. There is pain. There is suffering. There is sorrow to the kind of level that we could not even begin to comprehend all because they claim to be Christians. And Peter writes them to say, don't you see it, people, that you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed from this futile way of life that's been inherited. You've been freed from this bondage of sin. And it's happened by the precious blood of Jesus Christ who has always been the plan from the foundations of the world. God sending him for your sake. God sending him for your sake. This is what God has done for our sake. So that we could be redeemed. So that we could be ransomed from the sin that enslaves us. So that we could, verse 21, be believers in God. So that our faith and hope are in God. God has done this. So that through Jesus Christ, we who are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, 
so that your faith and hope are in God and not in this world. So your faith and hope are in God and the precious payment, not in imperishable things like silver and gold. This is good news, church. This was good news for them in their day, and this is good news for us in our day. This is the exact message that they needed in their day, and this is the exact message that we need in our day. We may not have a Nero persecuting us. We may not be in danger of losing our lives. They were. There are brothers and sisters today around the world that are. But that news was just as important to them as it is to us because the slavery and the bondage is the same. And the freedom that Christ brings is the same. This is the news that we need. This is the news that we have to take to the world. This is it. Now, I read this and I thought, This is a strange place for this phrase who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. It doesn't fit. Like grammatically, it just feels to me like this doesn't fit. And normally when I'm reading God's word and I see a phrase in there and I go, that doesn't fit. I want to stop to think this must be important. So why is it there? Why is it that Peter, in the midst of this, proclaims and reminds us of the resurrection? And it is because it was the resurrection that proved that Jesus was the substance and not the shadow. See, there had been countless sacrifices before him, right? I mean, lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb slain. And guess what? Every one of them stayed dead because they were shadow. But Jesus Christ, who is the real, substantive, eternal Lamb of God, proved it by coming back to life. It is the resurrection that proves that his was the price that ultimately frees us from our sin. He is the lamb slain, yet lives. Now let us not forget the context. What is the context? The context is conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exiles knowing that you have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. You see, it is this ransom, it is this price, it is the truth, the reality that Jesus Christ is the substance and not the shadow, that he is the eternal Lamb of God, slain yet alive, paying the price For our redemption, our freedom, our ransom that should motivate us to live in an appropriate fear of God. 
Because we now have no excuse. Because we are not a slave to sin. You are no longer held captives to your passion. You have been freed from sin. You now have the ability to live righteous lives. Because a payment's been paid and that payment was precious. The cost was steep. It was high. It was the life of God Himself to free you from your sin. Therefore, church, live in appropriate fear of God. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. He has always been the Lamb. He has always been the plan from the foundation of the world. And listen, if you have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are still a slave. You are still held captive to your sin. And the scriptures were clear. I read them. The wages of sin, the the result of sin, the life that you end up with leads to death. But there is a free gift of God. Free to us, but costly to him. There was a lamb that was slain. Blood that was shed. To purchase you. To redeem you. To ransom you. To release you from slavery and bondage to sin. And that comes through faith in him. Through Believing in Him. Who through Him are believers in God. That's what it takes. It takes belief. It's not work. It's faith. It's belief. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that He came and He gave His life as a ransom for many. And then he was buried and he was risen again on the third day, proving he is the one and true Lamb of God. That's what it takes. Put your faith in him. For those of us who have, then this is good reason to celebrate. And let's do that together. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.